Bibles and open them with me to Matthew 26 as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of Matthew. I want to encourage you to uh, keep the Bible open on your lap as we go through this morning. We're going to be looking at a few other texts uh, that relate to our, our main text that we're going to be looking at today. Holy Spirit, we petition you right now to use the words that I'm about to say to change hearts and minds. Lord, that is a mystery to us. It's a mystery to me. Lord, I pray that you will help us to live in a way in this world like you did. And help us to see that in how Christ stood before these men this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1801, at the age of 30, Ludwig von Beethoven began to complain that he couldn't hear the high notes of instruments anymore or high singing. Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks writes that Beethoven began to rage against his loss of hearing. To be able to hear his own playing, sometimes he would, he would hit the, the keys, the notes, so hard that he would leave the piano damaged. What's fascinating is that even though he was cut off from the world of sound by the age of 45, Beethoven produced some of his best music while death. Climaxing perhaps in the Ninth Symphony that we all know that actually changed classical music as they knew it at the time. Reflecting on this, Professor Brooks writes, it seems a mystery that Beethoven became more original and brilliant as a composer in inverse proportion to his ability to hear. Deafness freed Beethoven as a composer because he no longer had society's soundtrack in his ears. It seems that silence allowed Beethoven to hear something new. In our text today, Jesus' silence before his accusers, I believe, is going to teach us something new. Please look with me at verses 57 in chapter 26 of Matthew. God's word there says, Then those who had seized him led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders gathered. And Peter followed him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside... He sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up 
and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these testimonies testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answer, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is it that struck you? Pause there. The mob has bound Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and brought him before Caiaphas, the high priest, who gathers the scribes and elders of Israel. As it turns out, there are six trials that night. First brought before Annas, and then here we see him brought before Caiaphas, then Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again, and then finally at daybreak we have him standing before the whole Sanhedrin. But here at the second trial before Caiaphas, verse 58 tells us that Peter followed at a distance. I think that's interesting. He followed at a distance all the way into the courtyards and sat down with the guards to see the end. That's such an ominous way to put it. To see the end. Peter saw and heard everything we read today, and probably more. The, the trial probably, this trial probably, we can guesstimate with the six trials that they had to shuttle in before, between. You probably have 15 to 40 minutes per each one of these. So there's probably more that happened there. And Peter was witness to all of it. And what he saw made an indelible impression on him. What he saw was the silence of Jesus. The silence. Jesus was silent. He saw Jesus being peppered with questions, yet silent. He he saw Jesus' false testimony being said about him and what he said, his character, his words, his deeds. Jesus remained silent. He did not do all the things that we do when we're wrongfully accused. What do you do when you're wrongfully accused? You defend yourself. Or, maybe you blame shift. Well, it wasn't me, it was the woman you made. Or maybe you complain to others. Or maybe you criticize. Maybe you fight back in some way, whether it's external or internal monologue. You fight back. Jesus was silent, totally silent. And that made such an impression on Peter that I think he wrote about it. I think he wrote about this experience. Keep your finger here in Matthew and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, that's back in the, towards the back of your Bible, 
If you get to Hebrews, keep going one more book to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2. And as you do, I think Peter, through Peter, in his reflection on what he saw Jesus go through, his silence, he passes on to us three things he wants us to learn. Jesus' silences teach us to fear God and not man. Jesus' silence teaches us to live in light of the final judgment. And Jesus' silence teaches us how much Jesus loves us. First, let's look at Jesus' silence teaching us to fear God. If you're in First Peter, look at chapter 2, starting in verse 18. There, in First Peter, we, write, we read, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only doing good and not only to do good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, being mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter in this section is writing, is applying the gospel, and he's applying the gospel to servants or slaves at the time that are living in under unjust masters. I think Peter, in this whole section, is drawing upon his experience sitting, watching how Jesus reacted to being treated unjustly. And he was asking, how could Jesus have done that? What gave Jesus the strength to be silent when all those accusations were pouring on him? What gave him the power? What gave him the self-control to do that? Why didn't Jesus defend himself? Why didn't he rage against the unjust, injustice? How could Jesus face such intense pressure and persecution and not retaliate in any way? That's what we do when we're falsely accused of something. We, we retaliate. It's part of our, our flesh, our, 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 the fleshly reaction to that. We want to cry out. We want justice. We want to be vindicated. I'm right. You're wrong. Jesus was totally right. Yeah, what gave him the power to stand there? We desperately want to be right. And we desperately do not want to be wronged. So Peter draws on what he saw that night in verse 18. And he says, being mindful of God. How do you stand up when there's this suffering and persecution and pressure? How do you, how do you bear under that? Be mindful of God, Peter says. NIV translates it, be conscious of God. In other words, keep your mind on God, not on man. Keep your mind on the truth that God tells you, not on the falseness that man tells you. What we call this in biblical vernacular is, fear God, not man. In the original TV series of Superman, Superman would confidently posture himself. He had that traditional posture of, of the hands on the hips, the, the legs spread, the, the chest out. 
and there would be a bad guy shooting bullets at him. And, and he would be almost smiling as the bullets were bouncing off. Do you remember that? He, he would just be standing in that strong posture. And then something would happen that, that defies explanation. Did you ever catch it? You know, the, the gun becomes empty. And what does the per- person do? Throws the gun at Superman. What does Superman do? Superman ducks. You ever notice that? He ducks. Superman, the man who is fearless in the face of oncoming bullets, cowers over being hit by an empty gun. I think like Superman a lot of times, we cower and duck at the silliest things as Christians. People's opinions of us. Our reputation. Rejection by a certain social group. Life makes us flinch in a thousand different little ways. And like Superman, we duck at these empty guns being thrown at us. That's exactly what Peter is doing later that same night. Flip back with me to Matthew. You know this section of scripture. It follows exactly our text that we're in. In verse 69, we're told by Matthew that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And then he went out to the entrance and another servant saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it all with an oath. I do not know this man. After a little while, bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began invoking curses upon himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. I mean, what Peter is doing here is he's ducking at an empty gun, isn't he? He's been with Jesus for three plus years. And here, he's ducking. He's cowering. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I don't know this Jesus. Just like we do. In many different ways. We camouflage our faith. We don't say those things we should say at the dinner party. We don't mention what is right in a certain situation. We refrain from sharing the gospel. We do not come to church when certain people are visiting in our home. We show that we're just like Peter. We duck at empty guns. And Peter writes that the remedy for that is to be mindful of God. The the word says it all. Having your mind full of God. Think in those particular situations about God and who He is. I loved Lincoln's prayer earlier today about how amazing God is, how vast God is in His creativity. Think about that. 
or, or open your computer to that new image of the new telescope that they have that's, that's shooting, I don't know how far into space, and seeing the, the glory of how vast God is. Go there when that empty gun is thrown at you. Major theme throughout the Bible is fear God, not man. It's a major thread. It's a major cord that goes through the whole Bible. Psalm 27, 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold in life. Whom shall I be afraid of? That theme is over and over and over again in Scripture. Paul picks it up and says, If God is for us, finish it. Who can be against us? The Apostle John picks up the same theme. If God is for me, who can be against me? The writer of the Hebrews picks it up. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing. It's an empty gun. Fear fear God, not man. Keep your mind on God. Just like Jesus did before Caiaphas. That's what, how he did it. That's how he was able to ensure, to endure people saying terribly wrong, false, lying things about him. It helps you endure when people do the same. It helps you endure when people begin telling you that what you are saying is hate speech when it's true. It'll help you in times like that. That's an empty gun. It helps you endure when the community thinks you're hateful for not having transgender bathrooms. It'll help us endure that. Because that's an empty gun. Keeping your mind on what God says helps us not defend ourselves. When people your own friends and your own friend group think that you believing that Jesus rose from the dead makes you stupid. That's an empty gun. It actually helps you love people, too, when they accuse you and they hate you. Brothers and sisters, you, you, you I know you do, desperately want to get off that roller coaster of self-defense and reputation repair. It's exhausting. If you want to get off of it, be more mindful of God. Take, t- just read over this scripture again and again how Jesus stood there silently. He was mindful of God. Fear God, not man. Secondly, Jesus' silence teaches us to live in light of the final judgment. To live our life now in light of the final judgment. Jesus was able to resist the urge to retaliate and defend himself by keeping his mind on the final judgment. Back in Matthew, we have Caiaphas becoming increasingly frustrated as the accusations and the testimony are falling flat. He's becoming more and more agitated and frustrated. Jesus is silent. He's not answering his questions. He's not defending himself. He's not, he's not getting into it the way people usually get into it. So Caiaphas puts him under oath. And that's why Jesus answers. That's why Jesus breaks his silence. He puts him under oath. I adjure you by God. 
Then and only then did Jesus speak. Look at what he says in verse 63. Jesus said to him, You have said so. That's a way. It's not saying, well, you have said so. I didn't say so. That's not what that means. What that means is yes. Yes. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Clouds are often mentioned in Jesus' return. And in the context of Jesus' return, clouds are an allusion to judgment. Clouds are an allusion to judgment. Zephaniah 1.5 says that day, capital D, that day of wrath, meaning that day that's coming, the final day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. John picks this same cloud theme up in Revelation when he says in Revelation 1.7, Behold he, Christ, that is, behold he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes on earth will wail on his account. He's coming in judgment. And so when Jesus answers Caiaphas that his returning is on the clouds of heaven, we get a window into what Jesus was thinking about when Caiaphas put him under oath. How was he keeping silent? How was he enduring this? Part of it was being mindful of, of God, fearing God, not man. Another part of it is... He was thinking about final judgment. What the final judgment holds. And we see that's what Peter is thinking about too in 1 Peter 2. Peter Peter writes, He committed no sin, neither was deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter's exegeting the text for us. How did Jesus stay silent in the face of all the evil done to him? How did he resist the temptation to defend himself? He entrusted himself to God and how God will judge. Sounds very similar to to Romans, isn't it? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He entrusts himself to the future judgment of God. And here's the key, though, brothers and sisters. Not in a vindictive, vengeful, revenge-filled, angry way. Because that's kind of how our hearts work, isn't it? I mean, when we're hurt and we go, uh, just wait until Jesus comes back. What do we have in our hearts? You'll get, your, you'll get yours, Right? That's not, that's not how Jesus is entrusting himself to the end judgment. Jesus is not standing there with a little black book saying, wait till you get yours. It's interesting, Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Union president, revealed in an interview that he keeps a list of people that have crossed him in the past. One of the most senior officials of the European Union walks around with a book of names of people who have been mean to him. Juncker said in an interview, I have a little black book called Le Petit Maurice, where for the past 30 years, I have noted when someone has betrayed me. To defend himself, he says a little later, I'm not a vengeful person, but I have a good memory. 
The book became so well known in his time as Prime Minister of Luxembourg that he would tell people attacking him, be careful, Petit Maurice is waiting for you. That's not what it means to entrust yourself to the final judgment. That's what our flesh wants. Our flesh wants the revenge. It wants to keep that little petit Maurice. Keep those grudges. We want to cry out like Eliza Doolittle, just you wait, Henry Iggins. Just you wait. That's how our heart reacts, isn't it? But that's not what it means to entrust yourself to the God who judges justly. No, we're to trust God's judgment in the sense of having an abiding knowledge that all the wrongs will eventually be made right. Having an abiding knowledge that all the wrongs will eventually be made right. All the injustices corrected. The truth you now stand for that's getting more and more difficult to stand for in our culture is the truth. Eventually, in the end, that truth will be seen as truth. That's entrusting yourself to one who judges justly. It's not a vindictive, vengeful spirit. It's knowing confidently that what you believe, what the Bible tells you, is true. And it gives you the confidence, the quiet confidence, as Tim Keller says, to stand for it. Because in the end, everyone will see that it's true. That's what Philippians 2 is explaining to us. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Eventually, that truth, everybody will bow to it. And as we say it, we have to be confident of that. And when people mock us about for it, we have to just be quietly confident and trust in God who will judge justly. That's what Jesus was trusting his Father for. And that's such a powerful tool in the Christian arsenal. Lastly, Jesus' silence teaches us how much he loves us. So much that he was willing to die for us. Jesus was silent. In fact, all the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus was silent before his first trial and and, and Annas, silent before Pontius Pilate, silent before Herod, drove Herod crazy, he didn't say a word, so Herod threw him back to Pontius Pilate again. Jesus was silent, if you remember, before the mocking crowds when he was there with Barabbas, stood silent. Yet he did break his silence, not to defend himself, but to affirm who he is. Whenever he broke his silence in all those prayers, all those trials, whenever he broke his silence, it was to affirm, I am God incarnate, the Messiah. He was asked under oath here if he was God, the Messiah, and he said yes. He was asked before Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? What did he say? Yeah. Sanhedrin at daybreak, are you the son of God? I am, he said. He even used that ego in me, the, the name of God. And in affirming who he is, he convicts himself. You ever think about that? 
He's convicting himself. We see that because Caiaphas says, with no more testimony needed, he rips his garments and says, what do you declare? And they all say what? He's worthy of death. Kill him. Why would he do that? Why would he say anything? I mean, he, he didn't have to, and he was kind of winning the battle there. But he intentionally convicted himself. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he do that indeed? He did that so that he could die for our sins. That's the only reason. So that he would be put to death for our sins. And I think Peter reflects on this in 1 Peter 2, 24, where he says, For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that he might die to sin and for us to live in righteousness. By his wounds, Peter says, we are healed. That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus was willing to die for you. Allowing his body to bear the penalty for our sin. He willingly came to earth and committed no sin, no deceit was in his mouth. Yet he willingly took the death penalty so that we might live. By his wounds, by his death, we are healed, we have life. Romans 5 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were straying like sheep, Peter says, Jesus willingly came to rescue us. In the film, The Water Diviner, Russell Crowe portrays an Australian farmer, Joshua Connor, who allows his three sons to enlist in the First World War, and they go off, and they get all three of them are in the Battle of Gallipoli, and they all three go missing. Overcome with grief, his wife drowns herself, and Connor promises at his gra- her graveside to bring those three boys back and bury them there. In the movie, after a three-month journey, Connor arrives at Istanbul, and against the wishes of the British army, bribes a fisherman to transport him to Gallipoli. The British, there he finds a major in the Turkish army called Isan, And he's the only one that will help him search. Together they try and convince a British officer to allow them to search for the bodies of his missing sons. In one scene, the major and the British army officer asks him a question. The officer states, We can't go about helping every father who won't stay put and comes looking for their sons. Major Eisen replies, Yes. But he's the only one who has come looking. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came looking. Jesus came willingly and lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death. Your sins on his shoulders and he gives you his life and righteousness in return. And he rose three days later to prove that it's true. Brothers and sisters, he's the only one that came looking for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will change us, that you will help us to understand how wonderful and beautiful it is 
that Jesus stood silent and what it means for us. Help us to endure that type of suffering in the culture that we live in, helping us to be mindful of you, God, fearing you and not them. Helping us, Lord, to live in light of the final judgment that's coming, not in a vindictive way. And also understand that you loved us so much that you're willing to come rescue us. Thank you, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.